Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Ranting at you in the wee hours of November 13th from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And we're going to open up with a news item. September 1st, 2022, UN blasts China for violating Uyghur rights. In the last few moments of her term as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet's office on August 31st released a long-awaited report on allegations of human rights abuses in China's Xinjiang region. This comes despite immense pressure from the authorities in Beijing not to publish the report. The report, entitled OHCHR, Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, Assessment of Human Rights Concerns in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, People's Republic of China, end quote, accuses China of actions that, quote, may constitute international crimes, in particular, crimes against humanity, end quote, in its mass detention of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. And now we turn to a page entitled, Statement Condemning the OHCHR's Assessment of Human Rights Concerns in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, People's Republic of China, end quote, on the website of the Answer Coalition. That same which we critiqued in last week's podcast for promoting an event at the People's Forum here in New York City next Saturday the 19th, basically advocating for the betrayal of Ukraine and pressure by the Western powers on Ukraine to surrender and capitulate to Russian aggression. I read from the statement, quote, We strongly condemn the publication by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights of its assessment of human rights concerns in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, People's Republic of China, in the words of former OHCHR lawyer and human rights expert, Alfred Desaias, this document, quote, should be discarded as propagandistic, biased, and methodologically flawed, end quote. Going on to portray all of the research into the abuses in Xinjiang as tainted by Western imperialist intrigues against China. Now, how interesting, this Alfred Desaias who has been very popular in supposed left-wing media recently, even being featured on Democracy Now!, is on the board of the Desiderius Erasmus Stiftung, if I am pronouncing it correctly, a Berlin-based foundation which serves as the intellectual and policy arm of the Alternative for Deutschland, the far-right party that has tapped anti-immigrant sentiment to win an alarmingly large block in Germany's Bundestag. So obviously, this Desaius is an enemy of the Western powers and the so-called liberal order, not for good reasons, but for bad reasons. And isn't it curious that he is being promoted by the supposedly left-wing answer coalition which is led at its core by the so-called Party for Socialism and Liberation, PSL. Contrast this from another source, Radio Free Asia, essentially 
The news service on Asian affairs of the U.S. State Department, although it is officially overseen by an independent entity within the U.S. government, the Agency for Global Media, Dateline October 12th, Kazakh camp detainee to sue UK claiming cotton imports used forced labor. A Kazakh former internment camp inmate is suing the United Kingdom's trade secretary for allowing imports of cotton he believes were obtained through forced labor in northwestern China's Xinjiang region. Irbakit Otar Bay was arrested in Xinjiang in 2017 for watching illegal videos on Islam and installing the WhatsApp instant messaging service on his cell phone and made a crackdown there by the Chinese government on Uyghurs and other Turkic minorities, such as the Kazakhs. Otar Bey was detained in an internment camp where he was tortured and forced to work in an apparel factory, he said. Otar Bey joined the group of mostly women at the garment factory, who included not only Uyghurs, but also other ethnic minorities, such as Kazakhs, Uzbeks, and Kyrgyz. He produced cloth loops for belt buckles. After he was released in 2019, Otar wanted to call attention to the suffering of detainees and those being forced to work, he said. Quote, if you ever get out, go as far as you can to every country and call for our release and tell them what the Chinese government is doing to us, he said, end quote. All right, now this is bad editing, which is the plague of contemporary journalism. What they obviously mean is that's what the others left behind in forced labor detention told Otar Bey before he was released, pleading with him to raise the alarm internationally about the oppression they face, and he is now doing so. So that quote was Otar Bey himself quoting the other detainees that he left behind in Xinjiang. To continue with the text of the article, as many as 1.8 million Uyghurs and other Muslims are believed to be held in a network of internment camps in China that has been set up to prevent purported religious extremism and terrorism, quote-unquote. Inmates have been subjected to torture, rape, forced sterilizations of female detainees, and forced labor. Beijing has insisted that the camps were vocational training facilities and that they are now closed. The United States and nine Western parliaments have declared that the repression of predominantly Muslim groups in Xinjiang amounts to genocide and crimes against humanity. Call for import restrictions in a pre-action letter to the British Trade Secretary, Otar Bey called on the UK government to address an ongoing failure to impose any restrictions on cotton imports from Xinjiang. China is a major cotton producer, with most of it coming from the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. End quote. And a follow-up story, also from Radio Free Asia on October 19th. UK government sued over forced labor imports from Xinjiang. Britain's government will appear in court at the end of October to answer charges it has failed to block products made with forced labor in China's northwestern region of Xinjiang from entering the UK. Rights Group said in a statement Wednesday, which would have been October 19th, the October 25th hearing in Britain's High Court 
follows a suit brought by the Global Legal Action Network, GLAN, a rights watchdog with offices in the UK and Ireland, and the Munich-based World Uyghur Congress. Quote, customs authorities are failing to live up to their obligations in their international law to stop imports of products made in conditions so appalling and coercive they amount to crimes against humanity. And quote, Glan legal officer Shaban Allen said, forced labor in Xinjiang has been tied to the region's cotton industry, China's largest, which exports textiles and other products to international markets, including the UK. Glan and the World Uyghur Congress said in their statement, end quote. And the real question here is why the Answer Coalition, an entity supposedly of the radical left, which is traditionally concerned with human rights, and particularly labor rights and workers' dignity, why are they covering up for the Chinese dictatorship and making common cause with the far right to do so? While it falls to Radio Free Asia, essentially a media arm of the U.S. State Department, to give coverage to the voices of the ultra-exploited workers in China's forced labor gulag. Now, we all know what Radio Free Asia's agenda is. Their reportage is fairly objective compared to the totally propagandistic Russian state news outlets RT or Sputnik. Radio Free Asia is basically on a par with Xinhua, the Chinese state news agency, which is also fairly objective and staid compared to RT and Sputnik. Radio Free Asia's sins are mostly of omission, just like Xinhua does legitimate reportage but will never report on labor abuses in China, of course. Radio Free Asia focuses like a laser on the crimes of China, because Radio Free Asia is ultimately subservient to U.S. interest of state. But there is no reason to assume that these reports are not accurate, because such abuses have been corroborated over and over by the same bona fide human rights groups that have for years been calling out the U.S. on its abuses at Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib, Camp Buka, etc., And Michelle Bachelet herself, in her capacity as United Nations Human Rights Commissioner, has called the Israeli occupation of the West Bank illegal and hailed the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020 and called on the United States to dismantle structures of systemic racism against people of African descent within its own borders. In her words... And certainly the compromised moral stance of the U.S. to call out Chinese abuses is a valid point. But we can't make it the only point. At a certain point, the conversation has to be had about what is happening in China and Xinjiang on its own terms, and not in relation to the crimes of U.S. imperialism. And certainly dismissing all the vast evidence of mass detention and forced labor in Xinjiang as some kind of U.S. imperialist propaganda charade is really way out of line to be as polite as possible. It's intellectually dishonest, and it is ultimately abetting 
crimes against humanity. Dismissing it all as propaganda is itself propaganda. And it's very telling how the imperialist narcissist perspective dominates both sides of this debate, if we can even flatter it by calling it a debate, for both the Answer Coalition and for Radio Free Asia. It's all about the imperial rivalry between the U.S. and China, and not about the Uyghurs. For Answer, it's not about the Uyghurs at all. They're actively betraying them. For Radio Free Asia, one senses, it is only about the Uyghurs inasmuch as their real oppression provides convenient propaganda ammunition against China, which the U.S. opposes as a rising imperial power that threatens traditional U.S. hegemony in the Asia-Pacific region. Which is why I felt so vindicated to read the book Xinjiang Year Zero, an anthology edited by Darren Byler, Ivan Franceschini, and Nicholas Lobert, published this year, 2022, by Australian National University, which is offering a critical and unflinching perspective on the oppression in Xinjiang, placing it in the context of global capitalism and what they call settler colonialism. Han Chinese settler colonialism in Xinjiang, essentially similar to European settler colonialism in the Americas and Australia, and Zionist settler colonialism in Palestine. The title, Xinjiang Year Zero, is obviously a reference to the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, who declared Year Zero when they took power in 1975. And here, I'm going to read from the text a little bit, from the introduction. A direct comparison to the Cambodian genocide is inappropriate because the ideological underpinnings of the Chinese party state today are the opposite of the revolutionary fervor displayed by the Khmer Rouge. If anything, as we have argued, the Chinese authorities are attempting to create a new, cheap, workforce ready for capitalist exploitation, end quote. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, a welcome contrast to the absolute claptrap, which just appeared uh, today, November 12th, on the website of Foreign Affairs, a piece entitled The Return of Red China, Xi Jinping brings back Marxism by one Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister of Australia, which is some Cold War nostalgia's jive. Okay, Leninism, that is to say one-party rule, never went away in China, but there is nothing in Marx about a paramount leader running a globalized capitalist economy. That's just some nonsense. Okay, to return to the introduction of the book, But there are two uncanny resonances that, after much deliberation, prompted us to choose this title. First, as in Cambodia decades ago, the Chinese authorities have embarked on a quest to radically reshape the subjectivities of Uyghur, Kazakh, and other peoples 
imprisoning them en masse and preventing them from practicing their traditional ways of life in an attempt to clean the slate and engineer a new type of docile and civilized or proletarianized citizen. Whether they will succeed remains to be seen, but year zero seemed to us a very apt term to define this ambition to manufacture a historical rupture. Second, what is happening in Xinjiang today is unfortunately being met with skepticism among certain groups on the left. This recalls the way many prominent leftists, they don't mention Noam Chomsky, but I will, questioned the horrific tales of Cambodian refugees in Thailand in the 1970s and systematically attacked those who dared to denounce the crimes of the Khmer Rouge. This leftist support for the Khmer Rouge, despite all the evidence of what was happening in Cambodia, later served to discredit the left and deeply undermine leftist causes. We see the same dynamic unfolding today. In this sense, this book represents our attempt to frame the possibility of a critique of China from the left in a bid to avoid repeating the mistakes of the past. End quote. Again, thank you. The authors also refrain from using the word genocide, sidestepping the whole debate as to whether what's happening in Xinjiang is genocide. And there is a danger to eroding the power and meaning of that word through hasty use, which can sort of imply that any situation of oppression is okay if it stops short of genocide. Uh, That said, I think what the situation in Xinjiang is clearly on what Robert J. Lifton called the ladder of escalation toward genocide. We see mass detention, forced labor, separation of families, forced sterilization, and as this book especially documents, systematic cultural destruction. If that isn't genocide, it is clearly heading in that direction. The authors also use the name Xinjiang, which actually translates from the Chinese as New Frontier, so an inherently Sinocentric name for the territory. And they refrain from using the name East Turkestan, which is used by much of the Uyghur exile leadership, which the authors view as tainted by right-wing ethno-nationalism, an implicit dig at much of the uh, Uyghur exile leadership, which I'm not sure is entirely warranted. Interestingly, some of the uh, contributors note the ancient Turkic name for the Uyghur heartland in Xinjiang, Altishar, and even call for an Altishari resistance. Very interesting. And the contributions include some really important stuff much of it based on actual field work in Xinjiang, conducted just before such became impossible with the big crackdown of the past four years, including interviews with survivors of the camps and forced labor. 
I'll just provide a, a brief overview, making note of um, some of the essays that I found particularly enlightening. Many of the contributors place contemporary Chinese policy in Xinjiang in a continuum with that established under the Qing Empire, and not as any kind of radical break from it, including the very Chinese name for the territory, Xinjiang, or New Frontier, and also, very interestingly, the so-called Bing Tuan, or Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps, which began as a kind of frontier militia under the empire and was appropriated by the communist state and is today a military-run capitalist enterprise producing cotton and the like. And most significantly, in the program of Han colonization of the territory, which has become much more aggressive over the past generation. Contributor Zainab Ahmed makes note of the very deep interpenetration of the techno-security state in China, and that in the West. Listen to this from the text. Reports from the camps, officially called vocational education and training centers, often shock audiences with descriptions of how Beijing's goals are enforced by state-of-the-art technology. TV monitors are used to deliver the state curriculum in cells and classrooms, while detainees are closely monitored. They are disciplined via speaker systems if they sleep at the wrong times, express what are seen to be Islamic traditions, speak Uyghur, or otherwise behave improperly. Technology is also used to terrorize the Uyghurs outside the camps, with transnational corporations like Google, Huawei, and Facebook interlinking with venture capitalists from the major powers, including the United States, to build a sprawling AI-based policing infrastructure for the Chinese state. Millions of people in the region are subjected to smartphone scans, wiretaps, location tracking, and regular 3D facial and voice scans at local police stations that create biometric databases for Chinese intelligence agencies. It is very likely that as President Xi Jinping pushes China towards becoming a cyber superpower, the slow erasure and rewriting of Uyghur Islamic practice will be touted as a pioneering victory for social control to be repeated elsewhere. Notably, several private Chinese security companies have joined the Frontier Group, which is affiliated with Eric Prince in Central Asia. Eric Prince, of course, being the founder of Blackwater, the U.S.-based mercenary outfit and Pentagon contractor. Making clear the intertwined global reach of both Chinese and U.S counterterrorism forces, something made possible despite Beijing facing a torrent of popular criticism and international pushback due to its policies in Western China, end quote. And in the following contribution, good and bad Muslims in Xinjiang, David Brophy demonstrates how China's police state in Xinjiang 
mirrors the Islamophobic rhetoric and discourse of the Western-led global war on terrorism. In a chapter entitled Replace and Rebuild Chinese Colonial Housing in Uyghur Communities, Timothy Groes notes the systematic breakup of Mahala, the traditional Uyghur communities, with their own unique architecture and living arrangements, and their replacement with soulless, mega-scale housing blocks. An obvious echo, although the writer doesn't mention it, of what Robert Moses and the development elite have done here in New York City, which has also been a form of cultural cleansing. Then a very interesting chapter by Rian Thum, entitled The Spatial Cleansing of Xinjiang, Mazar Desecration in Context, notes the systematic campaign of destruction of Mazars, or traditional Uyghur shrines, to undermine their sense of sacred geography and rootedness in sense of place. Okay, a chapter by Guldana Salimjan entitled Settler Ecotourism and Kazakh Removal in Contemporary Xinjiang documents how the Kazakh nomads in Xinjiang's north have had their traditional grazing lands confiscated by the state and have been forced to become sedentary. And then, perversely, some of those lands have become eco-tourist theme parks where a simulacra of traditional nomadic Kazakh culture and way of life is preserved as a spectacle for the tourists where they are encouraged to live in yurts and wear their traditional dress, but as museum pieces, not as actual pastoralist nomads, really insidiously sinister, and with obvious echoes of the fate that befell Native American peoples, such as the Shoshone and Blackfoot, as their traditional lands were incorporated into national parks, like Yellowstone and Glacier. Okay, a chapter by Darren Byler, Factories of Turkic Muslim Internment, breaks down how the system of forced labor works with the establishment of what he calls re-education industrial parks in the name of poverty alleviation. In reality, detainees in the re-education camps are faced with a choice of accepting factory work voluntarily or being deemed suspect, which means continued internment in the camps. So basically, you're faced with a choice of either being a detainee in a re-education camp or being a dormitory-dwelling laborer in a factory complex, usually far from home, which casts a very dubious light on Beijing's claims that the camps are being shut down. Well, maybe they are, but that doesn't mean that anything is improving for the detainees. And I'll also point out, although the writers do not, the obvious parallel to Nazi Germany, in which I.G. Farben and other private companies availed themselves of slave labor in the concentration camps. Nicholas Lubert and Stefan Brem in The Global Age of the Algorithm, Social Credit, Xinjiang, and the Financialization of Governance in China. Note how, indeed, the so-called social credit system in China 
in which social media and financial institutions become tools of state surveillance is indeed being emulated by law enforcement and national security agencies in the U.S. and the West. And finally, Natasha Cowell, in a chapter entitled China, Xinjiang, India, Kashmir, illustrates how China's police state and mass internment program in Xinjiang is reflected in moves toward mass detention of Muslims by the Indian state immediately across the border in Indian-controlled Kashmir, despite the fact that China and India are supposedly regional rivals. All in all, an important book that could use much more attention. And I note approvingly that it is published under Creative Commons license, meaning that reproduction of the work for non-commercial purposes and with full attribution is permitted. Xinjiang, Year Zero, edited by Darren Byler, Ivan Franciscini, and Nicholas LeBaire, published by Australian National University in Canberra, 2022. Do check it out, and please do not believe the abhorrent denialism about the realities of Xinjiang being proffered by the Answer Coalition and the Western tanky pseudo-left. Thank you. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash countervortex. We need your support to keep going. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.